Let's continue our study of Psalm 105, Rejoicing in the Works of God. Psalm 105, Rejoicing in the Works of God. Now, as we set the scene here for this psalm, we noted last time that uh, the psalmist is recalling the works of God done or performed on behalf of his people. He begins with Abraham and moves through the conquest of Canaan. We will see as we move through this psalm that he remembers God's deeds, his wondrous works, uh, his miracles, his wonders. And so he's rejoicing in God's works, but he's also reminded why God works on behalf of his people. God works on behalf of his people because of his promises to his people. We also noted that the first 15 verses of this psalm are repeated in 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 22. Now, last time we considered verses 1 through 7, the call. Verses 1 through 4 is a call to worship. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Then in verses 5 through 7, we note the call to remember the works of God the works. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Then we concluded in our last study with verses 8 through 15, the covenant, the covenant. And we noted the first part of the covenant is in verse 8 through 11, assurance, assurance. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as a, for the portion of your inheritance. And then we noted the second part of the covenant, the accomplishment, in verses 12 to 15. When they were only a few in number, very few, and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Now today we come to the care, the care. So we've considered the uh, first 15 verses. Now we're going to move to verses 16 to 23 and the care. And verses 16 to 23 breaks into two parts, uh, preparation for the care and the preservation as a result of the care in verses 20 to 23. So let's begin with the preparation for care in verses 16 to 19. And he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. So in the recital of history, our psalmist now comes to a crisis in the history of the patriarchs. God called for a famine in the land, and he broke the whole staff or destroyed all the provision of bread. This uh, coincides Genesis 41 verses 5 to 57. During that time, he continued to provide for Jacob and his family. But soon they themselves were afflicted even by this famine and pestilence. And so Jacob sends his sons to go down to Egypt. Upon arriving there, they find one Joseph, who they had sold into slavery. But as the psalmist notes, it was God who sent 
a man before them. God sent Joseph. And this reminds us of Joseph's own words there in Genesis when confronting his brothers, you meant it for me for evil, but God meant it for good. God used it to preserve our family. Now you recall that uh, back in chapter 37 of Genesis was when Joseph was sold as a slave. Then he was uh, hired or bought by Potiphar and uh, Potiphar's wife made certain advances towards Joseph. However, he resisted. Nonetheless, Joseph ends up in prison. There his feet were afflicted with the fetters. He himself was laid in irons. But his word came to pass. That's a reference to the interpretation of the butler and baker's dream in prison. Genesis chapter 40, verse 5. And so during that time, you'll remember that uh, his uh, interpretations both came true, but he was forgotten until a future time. During that time, God tested him. That brings us to the preservation, the, the result of care in verses 20 to 23. The king, the Pharaoh, sent and released him, the ruler of the peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions, to imprison his princes at will, that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And so Joseph is called upon by the Pharaoh to interpret his dream, Genesis 41, 14. Uh, he interprets it. He's released from prison. And Pharaoh makes him the lord of his house, the ruler of all his possessions, the steward of, of his kingdom. Joseph now commands the princes under Pharaoh. Uh, he has the ability to imprison them at his discretion. He also is to teach the elders of Egypt wisdom. And again, you can reference this with uh, Genesis 41, 39 to 44. It is at this time that Israel or Jacob and his family come to Egypt, Genesis 46. And J uh, Jacob remained there in the land of Ham until his death. And of course, Ham, one of the three sons of Noah, Ham and his descendants settled the land of Egypt. Now that brings us to verses 24 to 36, the calamity. Verses 24 to 36. There's a preparation for the calamity in verses 24 through 27. And then there's the plagues, which is the calamity itself, in verses 28 to 36. So let's read verses 24 to 27, the preparation for calamity. And he caused his peoples to be very fruitful. He made them stronger than their adversaries. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his wondrous acts among them and miracles in the land of Ham. So we see in Egypt, God did two things. First, in verse 24, he caused his people to become very fruitful so that they were stronger than their adversaries. This is Exodus chapter 1 and verse 7. And then in verse 27, he says, he turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. And so we see the rise during that 400 years of Israel into a great nation, but at the same time, the Egyptians becoming wary of them, uh, becoming concerned that Israel would somehow depose them. And, uh, you know, there was great strife in the land of Egypt, so much so that they enslaved the Israelites and kept them in subjection. Now, in all of this, one would think that God had seemingly forgotten his covenant. However, remember, God works on behalf of his people because of his promise. He promised the land to Israel. He promised to make them a great nation. And so, in all of these actions, God is working towards that goal, to fulfill his covenant to Abraham, to give his seed the promised land. The patriarchs were few in number, 
three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet, after some 400 years, they grew and grew into a great number. They became an invasion force. And it was with that great number they would be able to go leave Egypt, cross the wilderness, and enter the promised land and take it as their own. God is orchestrating these events to intervene and release Israel from bondage. Now notice the psalmist focuses on the events here of the Exodus. Previously, up to this point, he's been rehearsing the book of Genesis. Now we're focusing on Exodus. And of course, you recall that God called Moses uh, to deliver the people out of bondage. He uh, used Aaron, Moses' brother. Uh, both of them were God's servants, but Moses was the one who he had chosen to be the Redeemer. So God, in his sovereignty, performs his wondrous acts and miracles in the land of Ham, in the land of Egypt. God promised to Moses, he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. You recall that, Abe, or that Moses rather went to Pharaoh, let my people go, was God's message to Pharaoh. Moses performed a few miracles, a few wonders. Pharaoh rejected it. And God hardened, or Pharaoh at first hardened his heart. Eventually, God hardened Pharaoh's heart for him. So regardless of the signs and the wonders, uh, the actions or events that point themselves to the extraordinary, the supernatural, Pharaoh would not believe. And so he, he refuses to release God's people. Now, this brings us to the second half of the calamity, and that is the plagues themselves in verse 28 to 36. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came a swarm of flies and gnats in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck down their vines also and their fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, and young locusts, even without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land, and ate up the fruit of their ground. He also struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their vigor. He notes that there was darkness in verse 28. This was the, he starts with the ninth plague, interestingly enough. Uh, the Egyptians, you recall, worshiped the sun, and so the darkness in the land was Yahweh's judgment, Yahweh's power over this false god of the sun. They did not rebel against his word. That clause uh, ought to be actually written as a question. And did they not rebel against his word? You know, all that God has done is still the Egyptians thumb their nose at him. Uh, the psalmist references the waters turned into blood and the fish that die. This was the first plague. Uh, the th third, he mentions the frogs, the second plague. Then the, the, the swarm of flies, the fourth plague. The gnats, the third plague. Uh, the hail. Uh, accompanied by the flaming fire or lightning, uh, which destroyed the vines and the fig trees and splintered the trees. This is the seventh plague. Then he mentions the locust or the eighth plague, who consumed what's left of the vegetation after the hail did its work. And finally, we have the mention of the tenth plague, the death of all the firstborn, the first fruit of their vigor or of their strength. These are Yahweh's wonders and miracles. These are the deeds that he has done. These are the works of his hands, which are to be made known among the people. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. He's declaring the works of God. You know, as we bring this devotion to a close, and we'll continue on next time uh, with verse 37 onward, but we need to consider the works of God. 
you know, when we talk about rejoicing in God's works or God's wonders, you know, we sometimes seemingly look, look for good things. But have you ever considered that God works in things that we would look, consider as bad or evil? Not evil in the sense of sin, but evil in the sense of calamity. And again, you know, God creates light and darkness. He creates uh, calamities. Uh, sometimes God brings about what we perceive as bad or evil into our life because he has a plan and a purpose. Listen, he sold, or his brothers sold Joseph. Joseph's brother sold him into slavery, but ultimately, who was behind it? It was God. God orchestrated those events, those calamities in Joseph's life to bring him to Egypt. Then Joseph seemingly gets back on his feet, and once again, God has orchestrated another bad event, a calamity in his life. He's falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife, or attempting to rape Potiphar's wife. He's then cast into prison. Can his life get any worse? Well, there's a glimmer of hope. He interprets this dream, but then he is forgotten and again left to rot in prison. But again, God is working all of these things to fulfill the promise to his people. And that's what he does with Joseph. In one moment, in the fullness of time, Joseph is brought forth and he's made the second in command in all of Egypt. Now God sends a famine. He performs this deed. A famine's a horrible thing. You know, it's a calamity. And yet even God's own children, Jacob and his descendants, are caught in this famine and they are without, but God uses it to drive them to Egypt. And why? Because that's where God is going to do his work. And that's where he re reunites Joseph with his family. And what happens to the Israelites? Oh, man, they're given the land of Goshen. They're put in a place of prominence. But then another calamity. They're enslaved. And, you know, when you're in the midst of that, you begin to wonder, what is God doing? Has God forsaken us? Has God forgotten about us? Is God not going to keep his promise? And yet we need to remember that God will work all things together for, according to his will for the good of his people and for his glory. Well, sometimes what is good is sometimes what appears to be evil or what appears to be a calamity. You know, we should not only rejoice in the good things, but as hard as it may be, let's rejoice in the hard things, in the calamities, in the difficult things, in the things we seemingly think are bad or evil. And pause and ask the Lord, Father God, what do you have in this for me? Let's pray. Our Father God, we come into your presence with rejoicing, rejoicing in your works, rejoicing in what you have done. Previously, we've seen your works in creation. Now we see your works with your people throughout Genesis and Exodus. And Father, Lord, as we come to you, we are rejoicing because we come to you in the name of Jesus. We pray according to his will. We pray to you because of what he has done. He has shed his blood on Calvary. He, through his sacrificial work, uh, enables us to come into your presence. Father, we lift you up and praise you. Because, Father, you are always working on behalf of your people. You are always doing because you have promised to preserve your people. Whether that be Israel or whether that be the church, you have promised to preserve both. To bring us both to an appointed place in an appointed time for an appointed purpose. 
And so, Father God, I ask that you would forgive us for not rejoicing in all of your works. Oh, it's easy to rejoice, Lord, in your good works. But, Father, we struggle to rejoice in the things that we view as bad or evil. But, Father, as we've seen here in this psalm, you work in both the light and the darkness. You work through what are seeming to us good things, but also you work for us through what are seemingly bad things. So, Father, help us to praise you. Help us to rejoice in all of your works and help us to have a view of what you're doing. Father, I ask that you would give us that vision, that, Lord, you would help us to know and to see what your plan is, what your purpose is in these seeming bad things, knowing that, Father, you work all things according to your good pleasure. They will ultimately work for our good and for your glory. And so we look forward to glorifying you. We look forward to continuing to praise you for all that you've done for us. Amen.